Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today we're talking about the induction process. Usually, conversations around inductions focus on their reasons, risks, benefits, and when to schedule them. That doesn't leave much time to discuss how they're done and share expectations on how long they may take or whether they're going to work at all. Tony Golan is here to walk us through the process and the details. Stay tuned. This episode of Birthful is brought to you by Expectful, an evidence-based guided meditation app created specifically for those trying to conceive, pregnant, or new moms. Reduce your stress, reduce your complications, and improve your connection to your baby and partner. Learn more and sign up for a free two-week trial at expectful.com slash birthful. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros to inform your intuition. Hello, Mighty Mamas and Mamas-to-be, Mighty Dads and Dads-to-be, and Mighty Parents and Parents-to-be. As always, I want to thank you so, so much for listening and for all the love you give the show. If you like what you hear or if the podcast has been helpful to you, then please do consider subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, even if it's a few words, if it's a short sentence, if it's like, yay, love the work. <laughs> Every review does help. Also, you don't have to subscribe to review or review to subscribe, but if you do both, even better. Regardless, anything you do will help. So thank you, thank you, thank you immensely. Also, if you love the show and want to listen to another fabulous pregnancy podcast, make sure you check out my friend Dr. Elliot Berlin at the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. Every week, Dr. Berlin interviews pregnancy and parenting experts along with celebrities and new and expectant parents searching for unbiased information. The show is pretty much the best of both worlds. It's entertaining and informative. Even more exciting, you may want to also check out his new YouTube series called The Real Midwives of Los Angeles. That, of course, is on YouTube, duh, because it's a YouTube series. Um, and it gives you a front row seat as women share their pregnancy, birth, and uh, postpartum experiences. They talk about pregnancy issues while following a mama's experience. That's what it, the, the show does, the series does. Um, and they also have guest you know, they follow the mom's experience, but they also have different guests come in and celebrities come in on random episodes. So the mama that they're following right now is Megan. And week after week, she shares what she's what's up with her pregnancy. So far, they've talked about books, baby classes, where to give birth, and her mental health struggles. So go check it all out at informedpregnancy.com. All right, so let's talk induction process. I'm super excited to be talking to Tony Golding about this because it's a relatively common intervention. So from the most recent Listening to Mothers report, for example, that, that's the third one in the series from 2015, they found that just over four in 10 births are induced. And the success rate of these medical inductions, the ones that happened, was 75%, which means that a quarter of the intended inductions did not work. That is the same number reported by the Mayo Clinic, and it may come to many of you as a big surprise because it is commonly believed that inductions, they, that they just work. So Tony and I are going to talk about all of that and the different intricacies that are involved in, in an induction and the nuances and what the process is. Let's get right to it. Tony, welcome. It is a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you for having me. Yay. And why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? How did you get to be doing this that you're doing now? Sure. I am, am an obstetrician and I've been in practice uh, for over 20 years. Um, and so I've delivered lots of babies. Um, and right now I am the medical director for our labor and delivery unit here at Beth Israel Deaconess. And I'm also the vice chair for quality and patient safety for our department. So my interest is really in making childbirth safer and better for patients. Um, and I've collected lots of experiences along the way in my many years of practice, as well as those experiences that I have from being a mom. Fabulous. And I really appreciate you coming on the show to talk about inductions because I find inductions are one of those things that there's a lot of variables and procedures that are associated with it. And there's some myths around it. And 
sort of there's a we when we talked earlier there was a we you realize you mentioned that there's a gap between what uh, uh, an expectant parent might get what information they might get about inductions at the office with their care provider um, and what information then they get when they are coming in for an induction and that those don't quite match up. Yeah, I think it's a it's a challenge that we have um, as providers. And I, I always I always worry that we're actually not doing as great a job as we could at describing to patients not so much what the reason is why we're recommending that a patient be induced, but rather what they can expect from that experience. And by us not really providing a robust description, I think it leaves our patients to assume that they're going to come in and have a baby. And we kind of leave out the middle portion of the story. Um, And the reality is, is that when you're in the office and you're talking to a patient as a provider, as an obstetrician or as a nurse or a midwife, I think that naturally as human beings, our minds tend to go to the counseling that surrounds all the reasons why we're recommending that this induction happen. Um, And obviously there are some exceptions to this, but I think that many times we don't do the other part of the story justice when we're in the office and we don't really give as great an explanation about what that experience is going to be like. And then the patient comes to labor and delivery with expectations and worry um, about the reasons why we've recommended induction. And all of a sudden at that point on labor and delivery, we need to kind of dial things back a little bit because it's usually a much longer, um, more, complex process than maybe we represent when we're in the outpatient setting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's this general idea that when you go for an induction, like you said, you're going to have a baby and that it's just going to like just happen and get going and boop today, you know, today, tomorrow, I'm going to have a baby when in fact it can be a process that can take days um, and, and also may or may not work. Yeah, I think that's that's the other thing that we often leave out, um, which is that it ta- it absolutely can and does take days. And in fact, it's more likely that it's going to take days than it would take hours, um, with some exceptions, and that it doesn't work, you know, with some frequency. Um, and probably the best thing that we that we all come to with an induction Um, the thing that will make it the most successful is patience. Um, And I think often we may not necessarily be supporting our patients and families in the best way um, to really bolster that patience that we all need um, with the induction process. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. Patience is key. Is so key. Um, So then let's get to it. Let's focus. This is such a weird show that we're going to focus on that part that is usually not spoken about because we're going to sort of breeze through the reasons for an induction because that's not the meat of this of this talk today, um, but rather the actual process itself. So um, I, I was reading, and according to ACOG, labor should be induced only when it is more risky for the baby to remain inside the mom than to be born. So how is that determined? Like, what are the common reasons for an induction? Yeah, so we make we give patients advice that an induction makes sense when either the safety of the mom or the baby is going to be improved by the ba- baby being born. Um, and one of the most common reasons that that happens is when a mom is significantly significantly past her due date. Um, so I don't mean by one or two days necessarily, um, but usually by a week or more. So that's a pretty common reason why we say, well, you know, the scientific data does show that the baby's going to be safer um, if the baby's born rather than remains inside um, at some point after the due date. Um, And I purposely am not sort of pinpointing an exact time because there's a little bit of controversy around that. Um, But that's a common reason. And then other reasons would be high blood pressure, um, sometimes diabetes, or the baby not growing well. 
Um, so the baby not growing well sometimes might be an indication that the placenta isn't functioning quite as perfectly as we need it to. Um, and then there are also maternal conditions, so conditions that are exclusively um, related to the mom um, that might make it safer for her to not be pregnant anymore. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna add in the show notes. I'll point the listeners to a whole episode that I have on due dates specifically. So if oh. they want to, yeah, they can go and listen to a whole hour on that. <laughs> Terrific. Terrific. Yeah. So I'm glad I can commit myself to any particular timing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've got we've got a podcast for an episode for that. Right. <laughs> um, all right. So once it's been determined that you know an induction is the the course of action, and parents have you know said, all right, let's do this. What are some? What are the ways of inducing, and what procedures come into play with the process? Yeah. So once you've made the decision together with the family that this makes sense, um, then the process after that depends a lot on how dilated or open um, the mom's cervix is. And that then tells us which kind of medication and which kind of procedure we might use to start the labor off or to get the cervix a little bit more ready for labor. Um, when, We start off an induction after we've sort of made this decision um, and everybody feels comfortable with it, then you do an exam and you can determine whether the cervix is completely closed or open a little bit, maybe open a couple centimeters. Um, And we tend to use this word um, called ripe or not ripe. Um, And what it means when we say a cervix is ripe is that it's ready. Um, And unripe kind of means it's not ready. Um, And when you start an induction process with the cervix not being ready, then we use um, different kinds of techniques, medication to get the cervix a little bit more open or ready for labor. Um, And it's that part, actually, that is the least predictable time-wise and also how the patient's going to feel in terms of thinking about how the patient experiences induction. So, When we start off an induction with the cervix being, let's say, closed or one centimeter, um, not ripe or not ready, um, sometimes we might place a special kind of a balloon to help gently push the cervix open a little bit more or give medication um, that's a tablet that's either swallowed or placed into the vagina. um, And it slowly melts in the vagina, the medication, um, to try to get that cervix just a little bit more open. But these things are a little bit less predictable Um, in terms of how long it's going to take and how the mom's going to feel. Because sometimes during this period of time, moms feel very, very comfortable. They're not having a lot of pain. Um, They can maybe walk around. Sometimes at our institution, we can actually send patients home between doses of this medication. Um, But then other times, it can actually be uncomfortable. Um, It can be sort of a crampy time. There can be maybe a little bit of bleeding. Um, Or in the case of using the balloon, sometimes they need to stay a little bit closer to the labor room or sometimes even in bed. Um, So I think that that part of it um, is tricky to explain. And, And it's a hard time because it's kind of like just the getting ready, this getting the cervix to be ripe. It's before real, real labor actually starts. So in terms of making the decision, this is the first, one of the first steps um, is doing an exam and then explaining to the patient what your suggested approach would be um, in terms of the first thing to start with. Mm. And I like thinking of an induction as it's actually try, an effort to try to jumpstart labor. And if you put it into those terms, you think, okay, because I could like give you all the prostaglandins and do the catheter and do Pitocin and do like all the things. But if your body's not quite there yet, it's going to go, you know, you, you, the body needs to go like, oh, okay, sure, we'll do this. Or because it also what? might say, no, thank you. <laughs> so one thing I say to patients a lot is that what we're trying to do with induction is actually imitate what the body would have done naturally had the body had the time or opportunity to do this naturally. And frankly, we are just not as good at it as your body is. And so bear with us because we think this is the right decision to make at this point. We want to aim in in the direction of moving towards delivery, but we're really doing our best 
to do something that we're not as good at as the natural forces of labor would be. Um, and I think that term of jump starting is kind of like saying a sim something similar, which is that, you know, this is we want this to look as much as like the spontaneous labor that you would have had as we possibly can. Um, and we're just kind of nudging it a little bit more in that direction, maybe a little bit sooner than than you would have on your own. Yeah. And I can appreciate that that process that, you know, there's different kinds of nudges and, 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 and there's a lot of because it's unpredictable. Once you start, you don't really have a clear idea of how the body's going to respond that sometimes, you know, it can take days, but it's also it, 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 the process goes in intervals. So, for example, you were talking about the doses of the um, you said tablet, but it, it would be a prostaglandin, right, that you're referring to? It's a prostaglandin tablet or it also comes in other forms. But, yes, it's a prostaglandin tablet, uh, mesoprostol. Mm -hmm. Um, and so with that, the, with miso, it's, it's, you do, you do have a protocol of like how many doses you can give and how often you give them and, and what are you looking for in terms of, can I give another dose or I rather we should wait and see? Yeah. So I, I think even that is, is tricky. Um, because we do have a protocol and, you know, the protocol says that if, the mesoprostol is given vaginally, it's given every four hours. Um, but the reality is, is that that actually might vary from patient to patient. And I think that is a really important part of how we describe the process of mesoprostol ahead of time with patients and families, which is that, you know, yes, the dosing schedule is every four hours, but we might give a dose at, let's say, eight o'clock in the morning. And at noontime, Maybe you're starting to feel a little bit more crampy. Maybe the baby's heart rate changed a little bit. And maybe we'll wait longer than that. Um, and sometimes that's frustrating. And it feels like for the patient, like we're not staying on schedule and we're not moving things along when in fact we're sort of erring on the side of caution and letting the body's own sort of biology go, go to work. Um, because sometimes... At six hours after we give a mesoprostol dose, at that point we say, oh, the cervix is now starting to change. It just needs a little bit of time to catch up. So, yeah, there's a protocol, but I think it's also, I think it's valuable for patients and families to know that while we wouldn't give those doses more frequently than would be described on a protocol, frequently we give them less frequently. Um, and we tend to give them for about 24 hours but if everything looks great with the baby and the cervix seems like it's pretty slow to change and contractions don't seem like they're starting up, then maybe we might go a little bit beyond that, too, sometimes. Um, and that that kind of judgment is individualized. Mm. Could you speak to the difference? And this is like me putting on my doula hat now. Could yeah. you speak to the difference of like the usage of misoprostol versus cervidil? Yeah, so the way that they work is the same. Um, mesoprostol is a tablet, and it was originally manufactured and approved by the FDA to be used to treat um, stomach problems, ulcers. Um, but it contains it; it has as its only ingredient this um, this this substance called a prostaglandin, which is something that your body also makes naturally. Um, and helps to soften the cervix and create uterine contractions sometimes. Cervidil also contains a prostaglandin. It's a slightly different chemical structure um, than mesoprostol, but it's the same active ingredient. Um, so it works the same, but it looks different. And it's, um, it's actually supplied to the patient in a different way. So it's, it's on a kind of like an insert um, that we place into the vagina, and then it sits there and it acts there for many hours. And the biggest difference between Cervidil and Mesoprostol is that Cervidil can actually be removed because it has a little, it's a little insert that goes into the vagina with a little ribbon attached to it, and you can, you can remove it. So, and that is important sometimes when we want to actually remove the medication's action. Um, and what I mean by that is that some babies start to have changes in their heart rate in response to very frequent contractions. And one of the effects of prostaglandins, whether it be mesoprostol or cervidil, is that very frequent contractions can set up. And some babies will have a change in their heart rate and 
when that happens, we actually want to make contractions lessen. We want to sort of make them disappear or get or get fewer. And by being able to remove the cervidil insert, it enables us to sort of discontinue that medication. Whereas with mesoprostol, because it's a tablet that melts in the vagina, um, it's far more difficult, close to impossible, um, to remove that once it's placed. Um, so that's the main um, that's the main difference between the two. But they both have the same active ingredient. We kind of account for that difference by using a very small dose of mesoprostol so that it's very unusual for it to cause this problem. Um, so we don't frequently find ourselves in the position of having to say to ourselves, wow, I wish I could remove that mesoprostol tablet. Um, usually this doesn't happen. And usually we're able to solve that problem in other ways by sort of changing mom's position or giving some extra fluids and so forth that um, helps the baby's heart rate to, to improve. Um, so that's, that's the main difference between those two things. Yeah, and I was going to ask you about it because I know that the dosage is different in terms of what you were saying, miso being able to, you know, do it every four hours, whereas my experience with Cervidil is it's more like a 12-hour before any other dose is given. Exactly, because Cervidil stays in place. Um, you put it in there and it kind of continuously delivers a, a low dose of, of the substance, whereas misoprostol um, is a sort of a, a single dose and then it's redosed. Mm-hmm. And yeah. does the miso, uh, the I'm sorry, the cervidil, does that affect mobility for mom because it's something that's more like a tampon that's inserted and left in there as opposed to something that melts in, in it, the vagina? It's, it's not very different. Um, you still have to do some monitoring of the baby after um, the cervidil is placed. Um, but with misoprostol or with cervidil, um, the, you're able to be fairly mobile. Yeah, good. Good to know. Because, yeah. I mean, that's one of the key things that I know can be really exhausting is if you're stuck in a bed for four hours, eight hours, yeah. 12 hours, right? Yeah. So I think I think that's a huge, huge deal. Um, I think that the whole process of cervical ripening, sort of getting that cervix ready, uh, that we're able to do with either the, the balloon that I was um, talking about, a fully bulb balloon, mesoprostol or cervidil um, is a very, very different patient experience compared to being hooked up to an IV. Um, because even if you don't have to lie in a bed with an IV, um, you, you feel attached to something. You've got something that even if you want to walk around, you've got to have a pull with you and so forth. And I think that that really does change your experience. If you want to sleep, it's, you know, you're just sort of constantly aware that you've got an IV in your arm. And I think it's a, it's just it's a very different patient experience. So I think that that is and should be part of how we kind of come to that joint decision um, with the patient and family about how we go through those initial that initial period of time to get the cervix to be ripe. Mm. How do these affect how when a, a birthing person can eat, for example? Do and also monitoring, baby monitoring, how is that, what's the protocol under these circumstances? Yeah. So that's going to differ from one hospital to another. Um, but, um, in general, if you have mesoprostol or cervidil, um, or a Foley bulb during cervical ripening time, the baby does not need to be continuously on the monitor. Um, I'll just give you our hospital protocol as an example. Um, and again, there's room for judgment here and you have to sort of alter it based on, um, you know, what feels right to you. But at our center, what we do, for example, for mesoprostol, um, is we put the baby on the monitor before we ever give the mesoprostol. Um, because we want to make sure that the baby looks great on the monitor before we give any medication that could stimulate contractions, because contractions can definitely be um, something of a of a um, surprise for a baby, and baby can have um, changes in the heart rate once they see start seeing contractions. So before you ever start with anything, you want to make sure that your the baby looks good, and then we place the mesoprostol and we monitor the baby for one hour after the mesoprostol is given. And as long as the baby looks great for that one hour, we take mom off the monitor and um, 
we offer her different options um, in terms of what she'd like to do. Frequently, if patients live nearby um, or not too far away, they are more comfortable being at home during this time, and we feel comfortable with them being at home. Um, we've done this for many years here. Um, and again, not all hospitals feel comfortable having patients go home after receiving mesoprostol, but we do. Um, and we have patients be at home, um, or if they'd rather stay around the area, if they just feel more comfortable being closer, um, there's actually a movie theater that's nearby our hospital or restaurants. They sometimes will go to have, you know, dinner and come back a few hours later, um, to check in with us. Alternatively, sometimes we are concerned enough for one reason or another, or a patient feels more comfortable actually being in the hospital. And of course that that's um, something that we do sometimes as well. Um, so we don't monitor the baby at, for those three hours or so um, after we do that one hour of monitoring after, for example, mesoprostol. Um, and we do something similar with a Foley bulb. Um, but with a Foley bulb, that doesn't involve any medication. So as long as the baby looks okay, there's really no reason that the baby needs to be continuously on the monitor. Um, that's, of course, unless we have some other unrelated concern about the baby. Mm-hmm. And so for, I mean, you said you, they could go and watch a movie and go to a restaurant. So I'm guessing like for eating, it's the same thing. They can eat even though they've taken the medication. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, regarding eating and drinking, um, you know, of course, staying well hydrated and getting good nutrition is extremely important during labor. Um, there are some other considerations about reasons why um, we ask women not to eat um, and sometimes even not to drink um, at later parts during labor and particularly um, if there's an epidural in place. Um, and things change in terms of baby monitoring when there's continuous um, infusion through the intravenous of Pitocin. But for this time period where it's just cervical ripening with one or the other medication or the balloon, um, we really want women to to drink and to eat normally. Um, you know, it's probably not the best time to have like a full on steak dinner with, you know, creamy mashed potatoes that are going to necessarily come back to um, to visit you a few hours later. Um, <laughs> but but uh, but we want people to eat what they like and what they feel comfortable with. Um, and, you know, that's important that labor is a marathon and we would never ask someone to fast before they started a marathon. Mm -hmm. And I also have an episode on eating and drinking during labor from Ooh. with uh, from Rebecca Decker from Evidence-Based Birth. So I'm going to link that one too. <laughs> Perfect. Yay. Talk to me a little bit more. We haven't, we talked a lot about miso and, and cervidil, but the Foley catheter bulb that you've mentioned, um, how does that procedure go? What's the intention? How long does it last? Yeah. So if we think about, um, you know, what the cervix is like, um, you know, it's an opening, it's an entrance to the uterus. Um, and it's a bit like the shape of a donut, um, except the hole in the middle of the donut is closed. So it's like one of those big puffy donuts where there's not really a hole in the middle. Um, the medications, the cervidil and the mesoprostol, um, release substances that change a little bit about um, the structure of how the cells connect with one another. So it works on a sort of a microscopic basis. Um, it also can stimulate contractions, and that can make the cervix open. So that's how medications work. But the balloon works differently. Um, the balloon works mechanically. So what we do is... Um, again, sort of using that donut a little bit as an analogy, you can think about a balloon when it's really collapsed and flat and very, very flexible and squishy. Um, you could thread it through a hole of a donut if it was closed um, and then gently open up that balloon, inflate it. And we use a little bit of salt water or saline to inflate the balloon just gently. Um, and it puts a little bit of gentle pressure on that opening so that it opens up a little bit more. Um, and gen generally, we can, if it's successful um, with the balloon, we can put a little bit of pressure on the cervix to open from anywhere from close to about three centimeters or so. Um, and that starts things off, um, gets that initial part started. 
a fully balloon doesn't do very much in the way of contractions, but it does change the cervix in terms of the the amount of opening or the dilation. Mm-hmm. And it's three centimeters because at that point, the balloon, that's as big as the balloon gets. And so yeah. no, it can't stretch anymore and kind of falls out. Exactly. It falls out um, is typically what will happen. I mean, occasionally you'll get a little bit more than three centimeters, but typically what happens is, you know, it's a pretty small balloon. And so we just fill it with a little bit of saline. And um, sometimes what we'll do is we'll put it on just a little bit of traction by taping it to the patient's leg. So it comes out of the vagina and it's got kind of a long tube at the end of it. And we'll tape it to the patient's leg. And then at some point it falls out. Um, and what that usually means is that the cervix has opened up a little bit so that the balloon is just falling through um, the cervix, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Part of what we want. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Tony, we're going to take a quick break, but we break. But when we come back, I'm going to talk about a little bit of what, you know, what are the expected? What's the purpose of doing these? What are you looking for? And then, you know, what's the goal? And after you get to there, what's the next step? We'll be right back. Hey, Mighty Ones, it is not uncommon for stress levels to go up while you're pregnant. You may be worried about the health of your baby, or maybe you're anxious about the birth, or maybe you're wondering how you're going to afford all the extra cost. Or maybe you're just guilt-ridden because you're not eating well and exercising and doing all those little things that everyone is telling you to do for the sake of your little peanut. Fortunately, there is one little simple thing you can do that won't take up more than 10 minutes per day and will improve not only how you feel about all these things I mentioned, but also your birth, the health of your baby, and your own immunity. That little thing is meditation, and yup, it can do all this and even help reduce your pain during labor. Don't know where to start? Easy peasy. Check out Expectful, an evidence-based guide meditation app created specifically for new, soon-to-be, or expectant moms. Learn more and sign up for a free two-week trial at expectful.com slash birthful. And don't forget to add the slash birthful part so they know who sent you. And we're back talking about the process of induction. And so, so far, we've had like... Trying to ripen that cervix to get it really to a place where it's soft and easily wanting to open. So to do that, there is the option of doing misoprostol or cervidil or using a Foley catheter. What are you, when you do these, what are you looking for? What's the goal to then move on to a next step? So the goal is um, somewhat subjective. There's no, there's no absolutes, um, which is true of most things about childbirth, I think. Amen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, but more or less, uh, we're quite pleased when um, the cervix gets to about three centimeters or four centimeters. Um, and in, in the setting where there are a few contractions happening along with it, that's even better. Um, so if we get to that point where um, the patient is a little bit more dilated, say three or four centimeters, and the cervix has started to thin out, um, or what we usually term effacing, which means, again, that sort of analogy of the donut, the donut gets flattened a little bit, um, thinner or effaced. Um, and ideally, if the patient starts to feel a little bit crampy or a little bit more uncomfortable with contractions, then we think, okay, we're done with this cervical ripening part of the process. Mm-hmm. And we'll move on. And that can take anywhere from depending on on other things it can take like you know maybe this jump starts the process or we're looking at two days later right exactly and I think that's that's really really important to understand that when we start this um certainly you know we'd love it and I've I've seen it from time to time where we give one dose of mesoprostol and two or three hours later you know the patient's four or five centimeters and you know completely inactive, you know, starting to be inactive labor. Um, but then there's a lot, a lot of other times where a good solid 24 hours later, not much has changed. Um, and we still have to keep plugging away. Um, so I, I think you're right on the money when you say it could take days. So does the, how, you know, how far along moms are, the, 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 the pregnant person is, or like the weeks of gestation, does that have anything to do um with how quickly the cervix will ripen, meaning how is an induction for, say, a 39-week mom as opposed to a 42-week mom? Yeah, so 
you're a little bit more likely to be successful the more further along that you are. Um, and that kind of makes sense when you think about the biology of childbirth in general, because it's just a little bit more likely that the further along that you are, the more that your own hormones have started to at least do a little bit of the work naturally. Um, now that does start to fall off a little bit and become a little bit less successful once you get past about that 42 week mark, um, because probably there's, there may be something about the fact that you've gone say two weeks or more past your due date. That means that maybe your body isn't starting to do its things that need to happen to have natural labor, um, happen on their own. But as a general rule, the further along that you are, the more likely it is that your body's just ready for labor and things might happen a little bit more easily. Hmm. Um, the most extreme example of that would be, well, not the most extreme, but a, a good example of that would be, say, if you compared doing a preterm induction, like, say, a 34-week patient who, let's say, had some medical reason that they needed to deliver compared to a 40-week. It might be easier um, to get past those initial parts of latent phase labor or early cervical ripening in someone who is closer to their due date. Right. Um, and I like, sometimes I like to explain a little bit of that because there's so many words attached to the observance of that cervix, right? Is it, is it move forward? Is it still back? Is it thin? Is it thick? Is it soft? Is it open? Is it not? Because all of these things are things that your body would normally have to do in order to start the process. So, like the cervix first needs to come forward and it needs to get softer so that then it gets shorter and opens up and and those things don't happen necessarily in that order it can it can shuffle it up but i remember my my trainer always would say um you know how you have the just a regular rubber band and you have a those thicker rubber bands that come like around your broccoli when you buy it in the store yeah. <laughs> and if you take a normal a rubber band, how easy that stretches when you try to open it, as opposed to when you try to stretch the other one, it's like, and your fingers have to fight it. Um, I always love that analogy. I like that. I think I'm going to use that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I even have some rubber bands in my in my doula bag, uh, okay. just for prenatals for showing it. Yeah. Um, but but yeah. So it really, like you said at the beginning, it depends on what your where your cervix is at, what it's doing at that time. You're starting the induction, um, but you guys do have what's called the Bishop score, which is a very nice little chart that helps sort of determine how, what are the chances of an induction actually working? Can you speak more about the Bishop score and what it measures and, and what's about? Yeah, so the Bishop score is a, is a way of adding up um, points that are given for different characteristics of the cervix, just like you were describing. Um, so, and it's scored on a basis of, uh, there's actually a couple of different variations of bishop scores, but uh, from zero to two or zero to three generally. And the cervix is actually given points for each characteristic. So for example, if the cervix is not dilated at all, it would get zero points for dilation. But if it were one to two centimeters, it would get a point for dilation. Um, if the cervix is very, very, very firm, like for example, when you place your finger on your forehead, if it feels that firm, then it would get zero points for softness or for what we call consistency. If it was soft and mushy and it feels like your cheek, then it might get two points um, for softness. And similar scoring for it moving um, position more towards the rectum or closer towards where the bladder and the urethra are in terms of the position of it. Um, and then there's also points that are given for whether the baby's head has started to navigate through the birth canal, um, particularly in women who have not had vaginal births before, the head actually what we call engaging or becoming lower in the birth canal is a very, very good sign. Um, that things are moving along normally. So when we start an induction, um, many people will use a Bishop score 
to decide whether, first of all, cervical ripening is needed. Um, and as a general rule, if a bishop scores less than about six altogether, um, cervical ripening is probably beneficial. But as you pointed out also, um, the bishop score is sometimes used to predict the possible success of an induction overall. Um, and many of the bishop score calculators, like for example, nowadays they're, you know, they're all um, in apps and so forth. They'll actually quote you a risk of cesarean related to a bishop score based on some of the studies that have been done. Mm-hmm, Cause there's an app for everything. Yeah, <laughs> I do have an app for like my phone. I do have a bishop score app just because I think <laughs> since we're making so many decisions on like, how that cervix is doing yeah it's just gives more information and, exactly. and gets everybody on the same plane yeah, yeah i i i love hate the bishop score <laughs> yeah and some of yeah i have the same relationship with it um and some of the bishop score algorithms will also take into account gestational age um so you know to your point a little bit earlier that does kind of factor in a little bit in how you're thinking about it um it shouldn't really factor into whether you need cervical ripening um, but it certainly could factor into your overall prediction of whether or not the patient's going to have a successful vaginal birth. Mm-hmm. And so the one I have also has a modification for if uh, if membranes have ruptured pre-labor. Yep. And yep. Yeah, because that, yep. it, you know, if it has been ruptured for quite a while, if it's released for a while and contractions haven't shown up, then there's more of a like, why hasn't this happened? Yeah, exactly. It's just, it's really just sort of a, um, it's a way to kind of quantify the, um, the answer to the question, why hasn't labor started? Yeah. 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 How reliable is the Bishop score in your experience? So I think it's extremely reliable in terms of from one person to another, um, like if I was to assign a bishop score and then, you know, someone else were to do an exam and similarly assign a bishop score, I think it's reliable from one person to another within a point or two. Generally, it's reproducible. Um, and I think it's very, very reliable in terms of decision making around um, uh, uh, cervical ripening. So just uh, making the decision for cervical ripening. I think that if you use a cutoff of about six for um, cervical ripening, you're generally choosing appropriate patients to recommend cervical ripening for. Um, I worry a little bit, um, and this, I'm going to let some of my own bias poke through here, um, but I do worry a little bit about using the Bishop score to predict success um, related to mode of delivery, whether it's a vaginal birth or cesarean, because um, that is actually using data that comes from very, very large populations to try to predict individual outcomes. Um, and if I were to do a calculation for you and I were to tell you sitting there that there's a 20% chance that your induction is going to wind up with a cesarean delivery, I do worry that I'm introducing some bias into all of our thinking, both from the patient and family standpoint, as well as the obstetrical provider. Um, what, why, why do we need to have that number right in front of our faces now? Um, let's see how it goes. So, um, so, you know, I have mixed feelings. As you say, I have a love-hate relationship with the Bishop score. Yeah. And, and, you know, because underlying all of this is like you were saying earlier, the, the, <laughs> unpredictability of birth. So I have seen, and, and of course, like, Anecdotal experience is not general data, but yeah. <laughs> but it informs some things. So I have seen inductions where it's like everything's tight and close and not really going anywhere and doses of MISA are happening. It's like one dose, two dose, three dose, nothing is happening. And then that fourth dose, boom, in two hours, there's a baby. Like, exactly. Right. So exactly. and, it's, and sometimes the cervix is so soft and open and you start doing things and and it doesn't budge. That doesn't yep. go forward. So there is that part of it that you can't predict any of it, really. Yeah. And I realize this this isn't a primary topic of what, what we're talking about today. But, you know, I think one of the other examples of when that becomes tricky is with patients who are trying to have an induction after they've had a previous cesarean delivery. So they're trying to have a VBAC. Um, and when we start to use statistics that try to predict what an individual person's outcome is going to be based on large population of data, um, again, if I were to give you that 20% number, it may look grim to you or it may look optimistic, but it's really all an outlook. And I'm just not 
I do worry a little bit about sort of clouding the picture by introducing those kind of statistics in a conversation that's happening with an individual patient and an individual provider. Um, let's just see how it goes. It's unpredictable. We don't know. You mentioned VBACs. What is what of the protocol is different for a VBAC as opposed to a, a you know somebody who's never given birth or a baby a mom that's had a vaginal delivery before um, in terms of this process? Yeah. So um, you know, I think the conversation around uh, induction related to you know for a patient who has had a previous cesarean. Um, I think, you know, starts off with the shared decision making around whether it's time to have a baby. And then once that you get to the point where everyone feels comfortable um, with that being the right decision, then at that point you decide how the baby is going to be born. Um, And as long as the patient feels enthusiastic about trying to have a vaginal delivery, um, then you start talking about how you'll go about trying to make that happen. Um, We do have a couple of limitations for safety reasons um, related to inducing patients who have had previous cesarean deliveries. First of all, they they need to have had a certain kind of cesarean delivery. The vast majority of women have had this kind with um, the incision in a safe part of the uterus in order to try to um, have a vaginal birth. And then in addition to that, Um, we don't generally use prostaglandins. Um, And the reason why we don't use prostaglandins is because of this stuff that I was talking about a little bit earlier with it being a little bit more difficult to control um, if the patient starts to have a lot of contractions. We can't turn it off as easily. So we use, um, we can use a a fully bulb balloon um, for patients who have had a previous uh, cesarean delivery. Um, And we can also use the intravenous oxytocin, um, even for cervical ripening. Um, and we just use it sort of slowly um, and try to get that cervix ready at that point. Mm-hmm. So uh, Pitocin, that would be the next step in this process. It <laughs> now, is. now we get to talk about Pitocin. Yeah. Um, so when do you, when is that cervix at a place that you're like, okay, now we probably should start Pitocin? And what's the point of using Pitocin, first of all? Yeah, so... Um, First, I feel like I should say that not everyone needs Pitocin. So mm-hmm. in, in induction, even if you're starting off with, you know, what we would call an unfavorable cervix and you go through days of cervical ripening, not everyone needs Pitocin. Some some women go into labor just from mesoprostol or from, from a prostaglandin or at some point their own labor kicks in or the bag of water breaks and then they release their own hormones that start to make the uterus contract. So so it's not necessarily, you know, a fait accompli. They don't necessarily, they're not necessarily buying the Pitocin as soon as they sign up for the induction. Um, that said, it's common to transition um, to Pitocin when the cervix is, let's say three or four centimeters or uterine contractions start happening or sometimes maybe the bag of water has broken but the contractions haven't started in full force. Um, And when that happens, um, that means that an intravenous is needed because that's really the only way that we can safely um, administer Pitocin. And I think one of the most important things to understand about Pitocin is the word Pitocin is a brand name. Um, it's really oxytocin, which is a hormone that your own body makes and makes uterine contractions happen. Um, and that's what Pitocin does is it creates uterine contractions and it, it creates it generally in a dose related way. So at very, very tiny little drops of Pitocin, we might get little, little tiny contractions that aren't very close together. And with more Pitocin, um, generally we're able to contract uh, to create stronger contractions and contractions that are in a little bit of a, a more regular pattern and are closer together. Um, the big thing about Pitocin though is Pitocin can be turned off um, and pito- you pee Pitocin out. So it doesn't last for all that long in your body. And so we can start at a very, very low level of Pitocin gradually increase it as we reassess how the patient is doing and how she feels and what the contractions are happening and how the baby's doing. And then if at some point we think, "Mm, well, the contractions are too close together now, we can turn it off or we can make the dose less. Um, It's all on this very finely tuned pump. And so we can control the dose and how much we deliver at what time and turn it on and off. 
Yeah, I really appreciate how quickly it acts both ways, like when it's in the body and when it's out of the body. You can see change very quickly. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, when it's acting or not. Like if it's too much, it's you can turn it down and, and, and those contractions will ease up. Um, exactly. And as long as you're making normal amounts of urine, it's going to go out of your body. Yeah, yeah. So what is the protocol for increasing that Pitocin? So, you know, of course, can differ from one institution to the next, but um, we, uh, the dosing is, we start off at this dose that uh, is two milliunits per minute, so tiny, tiny little bit. Um, And then about every 20 minutes or so, um, the nurse comes back into the room to reassess what's happening with the contractions. And as long as they're not strong and in a regular pattern and about, let's say, two to three minutes apart, then we increase by another two milliunits per minute. So it goes two, four, six, eight, ten, and so on. And is there a limit, a, a ceiling as to how high you can go with Pitocin? Uh, yes. Um, so most most institutions will stop increasing Pitocin at either 20 or 30 milliunits per minute. Um, and there are a couple of reasons for that. Um, one is that there's a little bit of a worry that at doses that are higher than that, you could potentially create more contractions than you need or want, or the baby really would appreciate. Um, there's also a side effect from Pitocin, oxytocin that we need to be very careful of, which can create an imbalance in the fluid and electrolytes in your body. If you receive too much Pitocin, um, and that can happen when Pitocin is given over a very long period of time and at higher doses. So we need to be careful about that. Um, but the other thing that I think is really important to pit, point out about really, really increasing Pitocin doses above, let's say, 20 or 30 milliunits is that if it doesn't work when you get to 20 or 30 milliunits, it's pretty unlikely to work at doses that are higher than that. Um, and so there's just not a whole lot of benefit um, to increasing it beyond that. So what do you do if somebody gets to that point? Then you have some choices, um, and it really depends on what's happening with the labor. Um, first of all, you can just leave it there at that amount. Um, if the water hasn't broken and nothing is happening with the induction, and the induction wasn't being done for safety reasons, so in other words, the mom isn't sick, the baby isn't sick, um, then you have the option to stop. Um, and we do this sometimes. We say, well, today doesn't seem to be the day. Um, it's not working. And rather than saying, let's keep on pushing this or doing a cesarean delivery, you can say, you know, your baby looks fine. You look fine. And let's turn it all off. Let's have you rest, get a good night's sleep and let's regroup in the morning. Um, and that's a perfectly safe and reasonable thing to do. Um, and sometimes when we do this again, this is anecdotal, but sometimes when we do that, Lo and behold, you know, six, eight, ten hours later, natural labor starts on its own. Um, so, you know, I think that there's choices at that point um, depending on what's going on with the patient. Now, in some situations when you get to that point, you can't shut the whole thing off. Um, either the bag of water is broken or maybe you're eight or nine centimeters or maybe you've been pushing for an hour and nothing's happening or, uh, you know, five hours and nothing's happening, um, or maybe either the mom or baby is sick enough that we can't really, we don't really have the benefit of waiting a day or two. Um, and then in that case, the conversation will happen um, around next steps. And next possible steps would be to place a different kind of monitor um, that goes inside the, the uterus to measure the actual real strength of the contractions. Um, and then, of course, um, Sometimes, depending on what the cervical dilation is, sometimes we go backwards at that point and we turn off the Pitocin. We go back to one of the cervical ripening agents if we need to. That can happen. Um, and then, of course, cesarean delivery is on the table. Um, so there are certain reasons why we might recommend cesarean delivery when we've maxed out our Pitocin. And depending on what's happening with the patient, cesarean delivery might be an appropriate option at that point. Mm-hmm. So... 
So <laughs> I'm like, I lost my question. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the experience of Pitocin because I see a lot of moms that have had or birthing persons that have experienced labor under Pitocin conditions and under their own body's conditions. And many people speak to the difference between it, that they're not completely the same. And it would make sense because one is a hormone that your body makes naturally and also acts as a neurotransmitter, sending signals to your brain saying, hey, send endorphins. Whereas the one we synthesize and it's, it's you know, man-made doesn't quite do that. So what what do you say about this? Yeah, so I think I think there's two sides to that story. I think that um you know going back to what I was saying earlier that you know we as midwives and obstetricians are trying super super hard to mimic the natural labor process but we're simply not that good at it. Um I think is also is true about this phase where patients receive um pitocin that um you know, your pituitary gland, which is where oxytocin is made in the human body, does not have a meter and a pump on it. Um, it's, it's not, we are not delivering oxytocin to your body the same way as your own body does. So it is going to be slightly different. Um, and your body's response to how it delivers and how much oxytocin delivers probably is responding to much, much more subtle cues in terms of your own human physiology than we respond to with our fingers on a pump and an intravenous. Um, so I think that it doesn't act exactly the same. Um, it doesn't send your brain exactly the same messages. It also doesn't respond to your brain in the same way as your own delivery of, and manufacturing of oxytocin does in your own body. Um, in terms of contractions, we're really just doing the very best that we can to try to imitate what your body does, but it's not a hundred percent. And I find there's also like within that imitation, there is a different purpose because once you have a Pitocin in what I've, you know, my experience is that the goal is to try to get those contractions to be strong, long, and closer together. It's sort of like um, almost a transition pattern, like you want every two to three minutes. Um, and if not, the Pitocin keeps going up. But in a non-induced labor, that's a pattern that you won't experience for that long because you'll get, like at three centimeters, you're not experiencing that pattern. At five centimeters, you're probably maybe starting to get something close to that. So it can be really tough, I find, to experience that pattern for 10 hours as opposed to like the 30 minutes to two hours or so on average that would happen naturally. Yeah. So I think that really speaks to um, the decision making that we use about that transition point, which is the question that you had asked a little bit earlier that, you know, when do you make this decision to transition um, to the Pitocin rather than either just sitting on your hands and waiting for something to happen or giving perhaps another dose of mesoprostol or letting the Foley balloon stay in or, you know, whatever the decision making process is, which is that, um, you know, oxytocin will stimulate those contractions. That's what it does. Um, and you, by starting it relatively early, you create a longer amount of time that the patient is having these regularly spaced contractions. And I agree completely that in real life, in natural life, that that might not actually be their experience. Now, sometimes it is. Sometimes patients actually get really, really super strong contractions during the entire entirety of latent phase, and that's you know, that's a difficult experience. But I agree with you completely that we do create this artificially long period of time with regular contractions. Um, the other thing I think that we don't fully appreciate well enough um, is that in natural labor. Yes, absolutely. Some women in natural labor have regularly spaced every two to three contractions. But I also have seen many, many patients who have had 
these contraction patterns that for all the world don't really look like they would be efficient. And lo and behold, they have a two or three hour labor in spite of the fact that they've only had, you know, let's say three contractions in an hour. Um, and so, you know, human physiology is far more variable than just having this singular aim of having contractions every two to three hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's again, back to that, like, we're all so different. All yeah. the things we do are different. I'm sure we, yeah. don't, we don't digest the same, right? We know this. We don't breathe the same, quite the same. So we don't birth the same either. Exactly. You know, I have, I have two children and I, I'm, I really, I really, really think that I've raised them both the same. They are as different as two people could possibly be. Mm. And, you know, so we're all different. And I, and I think that in childbirth, um, you know, we, we probably as providers could benefit from understanding that every childbirth, um, is not necessarily going to follow that cookbook, uh, prescription set. So, yeah. yeah. So what are some good questions that expectant parents can ask their care provider to better understand what they would go through and their options and especially their options once the process is started, like how much level of input to do they have in terms of how the process continued? Like I know there's, for example, what we were just talking about Pitocin, that there is a goal to get those contractions to every, like get them strong in every two to three minutes. But what if that's overwhelming for the birthing person? You know, can that be just pulled back? Can they say, oh, can we just try this out? Yeah. So I, I think there's, there's tremendous opportunity for the person who is actually undergoing childbirth to ask questions and to become their own advocate. The That starts with really understanding the reasons for induction and making sure that there's shared decision-making around that. The other part that I think becomes really critical is to ask the providers, the nurses, midwives, the, the doctors, how long do you think this is going to take so that they can be sort of prepared for what that experience is going to be like? And then the third part is what you pointed out, but I, I wanted to just be a, a little bit more kind of granular about it, which is that if you get to this portion in the induction where it seems like it's not working, then asking for the full array of options at that point is really, really important because I think that we as providers, not with ill intent, but just with, because of human nature, we make certain assumptions about what patients might want. Um, and we want to hear from patients and families in terms of what were your goals? You know, is it, is it really, really important to you now as we're sitting here now, let's forget about, you know, where you started from now as we're sitting here right now, you know, do you want to give this more time? I've given you all the medications that I have, you know, in my in my medicine cabinet here, um, and nothing seems to be working here. What would you like to do? And sometimes the answer to that is going to be, I've had it, and I don't want to do any more. But sometimes the answer to that is going to be, I really want to do whatever I can to make this happen naturally and to have a vaginal delivery. And then our responsibility as providers is really to say, well, I think it's safe for you to sort of take a break from this induction and to take a step back or, you know, I've been pushing for three hours. Do you think I could rest for a half hour? And it's our obligation to say, yeah, I think that that makes total sense to me to me or actually here's the reasons why I don't think that's a great idea. Um, but I think asking questions about options at every single step along the way is really important. Um, and understanding that overarching this entire thing is, you know, what's the safest option? Um, and then what are the other things? What are the other things I can do um, to make this happen in the way that I want it to happen, but still maintain safety? Mm, that's a great point. That is a great point. And I'd like to like leave listeners with the last kind of thought of, you know, there's many, as you have heard this in this episode, there's many little things and nuances and circumstances that can come into play of how an induction proceeds. And to not, you know, there's no way of knowing what's going to happen. So have patience. Um, and also, don't, uh, don't attribute it 
that if it doesn't work, that it's your failure. Because it's there's no way. It's not a failure. It's 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 a process with nuanced elements. So there's no way for anyone to know um, what that's going to be. It's just circumstances. Couldn't agree more. Uh, I think I think that starting off the process, knowing that there are some things that you can control and other things that you have no control over is part of the way to not end the process with feeling like it was anyone's failure at all. Um, this is human physiology and, um, it really, you know, charts its own course. Mm -hmm. And oh my goodness, know that it can last several days. So figure it like approach it like a transatlantic flight, rest as much as you can, (laughs) hydrate, read. It's going to be boring for a long time. Just take care of yourself because once you land, you gotta like hit the ground running. Exactly. And if you're tired, it's not going to be good. Couldn't agree more. Oh, thank you so much, Tony, for this beautiful talk. I, I, we could talk so much more, but I, I'm looking at the time and going like, oh, that just flew. Um, <laughs> what if listeners want to get into contact with you or, or reach out? Can they do that? Of course. How? So uh, I am at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Um, and my email address, and I'm happy to receive emails, is T-G-O-L-E-N at B-I-D-M-C dot Harvard dot E-D-U. Thank you so, so much. I'll put it on, I'll link it on the show notes. It's been a pleasure having you here today. Pleasure. Thank you. Mighty Ones, I love to hear from you. So share with me your thoughts. And if there's a certain topic you'd like to know more about, let me know. Go to birthful.com where you can learn more about me, the show, Patreon member benefits, send me messages and more. I'm also on Facebook or Twitter as at birthful. So come say hi. This episode was produced by me and made possible by you, the Birthful Patreon supporters, and by the wonderful people at Expectful. The title song for this podcast is Vive Ace by Kevin McLeod, and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zabriskie. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to another maternity pro to inform your intuition here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, Mighty One, did you know that if you started listening to one birthful episode per day at the start of your pregnancy, your baby would be about three months old before you got through all of them? That is so much birthful. So to ease us into the summer and to help you catch up on your listening, we're going back to releasing one episode per week instead of two. Now you know.